I'm Scott Kerr, and you're listening to Facing the Giants, a podcast where I speak to today's luxury entrepreneurs about taking on the Goliaths of the industry. My guest on Facing the Giants is Stephanie Sarka, co-founder and CEO of One Atelier, a direct-to-consumer luxury accessories company that allows customers to design their own handbags by combining old-fashioned craftsmanship and modern technology. She formed the brand in 2015, joining forces with co-founders creative director Frank Zambrelli and master craftsman Anthony Luciano. All three were veterans at top brands in the luxury fashion or tech worlds and together set a path to change the way people think about bespoke luxury. Welcome, Stephanie. Hi, how are you today? Right off the bat, I'd love for you to share your professional background before co-founding One Atelier. So I'm not your average bear in that regard. I um, started actually on Wall Street. And uh, this is when I was still quite young, right out of college at Goldman Sachs. And the good news was I was in the mergers and acquisitions department. So I saw a lot. I got to go into companies doing due diligence and then write the memorandum about them. So I really had to dig in. And the lesson that became quickly clear was that I belonged on the other side of the table. I really thought the folks on the other side of the table running companies, building product, were having more fun, at least my definition of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, so I spent, that was two years, and young, you know, you never take away what incredible experience that was at that ripe young age of 20, running around the world with Goldman Sachs. But I did, before going to graduate school, want to explore the other side of the table. So I had the opportunity to go to International Flavors and Fragrances in Paris, which is an American company but I was at their fragrance um, center in Bois-Colombe right outside of Paris and Mm -hmm. spent almost a year there. And that really confirmed for me that that's the place I belonged in terms of creating and building and marketing and running businesses, growing businesses. I did end up going back to Harvard Business School and it was really hard, I have to say, because a lot of the investment banks come back and when you have that on your resume, it's an easy sidestep, but I was determined and I ended up going to coach Uh, at a really important time after graduate school with Lou Frankfurt, right after they had been purchased by Sarah Lee. Incredible brand builder, incredible mentor. I was there for over seven years. Uh, And he really, to his credit, he, on the one hand, I'll never forget the day that he invited me to my office and told me nobody cared I'd gone to Harvard Business School. (laughs) And that, you know, stripped those stripes right off my shoulder and basically made it clear I was gonna have to earn my way in this organization because most of the other folks there, you know, weren't coming from that perspective. And so I did. He put me into his credit, he put me in every position possible. You know, I've I've been in tanneries, I've been on the production floor. I've been in the shipping department as well as ultimately running the handbag business for them. And then ultimately he gave me Mark Cross as a brand, a previous rendition of Mark Cross. And um, that was the experience that I think formed me. And I think he's probably had the most impact on me as a professional. Um, But from there, I went to co-found a big shift. I went to co-found a internet company, which was in Pasadena, called goto.com. I'm actually one of the four co-inventors of the paid search business model, which is kind of a crazy thought. We had no idea what that was going to become, but I have a piece of paper still in my files showing the whiteboard where we were writing what that business model would look like. Um, And so that was a wild four years, just at the height of the internet, 1998, 2000, we took it public after a year. It was extraordinary, grew it to over a billion dollars in revenue, and then ultimately sold it to Yahoo. Um, and the story about why we didn't become Google is for another call down the road someday. 
and from there I came back to New York, which is where my heart is, and really uh, spent time doing what I call sort of sprinkling fairy dust. So whether as an advisor or an investor or a board member, I got involved in a lot of starting startup businesses. This is when New York was just starting to hit its stride with internet businesses. I mean, I was one of the very few technologists in New York City at the time. Uh, this is, you know, early 2000s. And so I had the opportunity to see a lot of things and get involved in a lot of things. I also was going to China quite a bit and got involved in a number of startups out there as an investor and an advisor. But at some point I realized I was working so hard and so many hours a week, I thought maybe I should redirect those resources towards something of my own. And that's where the idea of One Until A was born. Yeah. So what was the market opportunity that you saw that motivated you to launch a custom luxury bag company? I still remember the day there was a woman in my house and she was showing me this bag that she had and telling me all the things that were wrong with it. And this was a bag she had spent several thousand dollars for, and it was a beautiful bag, but the shoulder strap was the wrong length for her. She wished she could have bought it in gold or silver. I don't remember which now, but she couldn't. Uh, There was a list of five things. And so I ultimately got together with two other gentlemen who were co-founders with me and we started running some focus groups and we heard this across the board that women are always going to be seduced by these, the beauty of these brands and the cachet of these brands that, you know, they're, they're big name, as you call them, sort of giant luxury brands for a reason, but there's 90% of the time there's a disappointment factor. And in many, many cases, those bags are staying in their closet. I just heard it again yesterday from a client who called to thank us for a piece that had just arrived in her door and how she has a closet full of all the known suspects. And for one reason or another, she, they, she just doesn't gravitate to use them. So the goal really became, let's make a bag that women actually wear, that they actually will wear every day. It's still luxurious, feels amazing. It's handcrafted impeccably. It's beautiful to feel and love and hold, but that they actually wear and don't revert to their kid's canvas bag from their high school as the go-to bag. And so that was the goal was to become, that was the original incentive was just to become the go-to bag because it was a bag that women would actually wear because they were getting exactly what they wanted. So this was, I mean, this was mass customization that, that you were set out to do. I mean, that's, I, I know that's the word people use and I guess that's the right word to, to use for it. The goal was to do really three things. One is, you know, on the one hand, other brands do this for some of their iconic brands but they're just not built to run this across their entire range because it's actually a very different business model than what they do, which is build things, collections, run them through mass production, in many cases now abroad. Um, And you just can't turn that ship so quickly where we were natively born to do this. So we do it for every style in many regards because um, this is what clients were asking for. On the other hand, we also can accomplishes with the same quality and craftsmanship. I would say we stand up side by side, shoulder to shoulder to any of the other brands doing it. But because we do this every day, we've learned how to do this in a way that scales in a way that is our primary business model. Uh, and because we do it across our entire range, we can keep the price more reasonable, you know, in contrast to Hermes or Gucci or Louis Vuitton or someone who will do this, that it'll be on tens of thousands of dollars, $20,000, $30,000. And then we'll take, you know, up to a year to get it. And so in our case, it's very much comparable to the other luxury brands in price, but they're getting exactly what they want. And we will deliver it within three weeks and usually less. 
And one of the things that was our goal when we began One Atelier was to be, and we have become truly the only natively custom and inherently sustainable luxury brand in the world. So one of the wonderful byproducts of being 100% custom is that we build every piece to order. Uh, we never produced inventory to a forecast. Everything is handcrafted to order. And as such, we are actually the only luxury brand exclusively practicing on-demand production. And what this means is there's no warehouses full of leather and products typical of a luxury brand, which also means we don't have any unsold inventory. The excess product that many luxury houses will incinerate or send to landfills to the tune of 13 million tons a day. So we have a virtually eliminated waste, both raw materials and finished goods from our supply chain. And you said in an interview that technology is the lever that allows us to transform the entire luxury experience. So can you share more about One Atelier's technology and how customers put it to use when they go mm -hmm. to your site to design their own bag? Absolutely. That was my big lesson at goto.com, which was that technology was the game changer in virtually every industry. And of course, we've seen that subsequently. Um, in our case, we have built a proprietary customization capability. We did it that way because we did speak with all the other large e-commerce businesses. And even though they have the ability to build variation, it was not going to have the kinds of flexibility and ability to build something as custom as we wanted. So our technology is completely proprietary. And I would say it's the absolute best you'll find in the industry if there are any customizing brands out there at all, anyhow, um, where you can go to the site and select one of them today, over 30 silhouettes and select functional aspects, shoulder strap length, certain interior features such as a laptop sleeve, and then of course the leathers and the colors to build the piece precisely as you wished for it to be. Um, and that's all done through our customizer and then we can layer new styles in, new leathers, new colors as we go along. Um, it's really replicating what say my mother would have done if she went to a tailor to have, a, you know, bespoke tailor to have something customized where she'd have to sit there and kind of work from a sketch and write things on notes. So all of that's just happening in real time on our technology. And that is another way that we've made it, I guess, if you want to call it mass customization, but accessible to a much wider audience because you can flip on your laptop and go in and go through that experience right there. But it was hard to build, I will say. <laughs> where are the craftsmen located? So everybody is here in Manhattan. We um, are on the, in the garment district. We thought it was important to be in the United States so we could have that responsiveness in terms of real time with our client. And you really just can't have one of a kind bags being made in Asia. Um, and secondly, we liked being in New York because there's a really small but tight garment center uh, community here that supports each other. And while all of our beautiful leathers um, come from outside of the city and, and until recently, which I'll tell you about, um, not in America, there's a lot that we do procure still from the city. And it's been an incredible way to be part of the garment district. And how long does it usually take to build an average bag? So the bags themselves, you know, are in hours is not that long, but we do try to build scalability by gathering like style. So I can tell you, we've never made the same bag twice, literally, even though there's hundreds and hundreds of quadrillions of combinations out there. Um, so clients will rarely land on the same exact uh, combination of materials and hardware finishes and such. Um, so we try to gather like styles. So the universal satchel, because there are economies in cutting and running the same style, even if each one is a different combination of leathers. So that process is all handled here in Manhattan. And we can do that within 
usually two weeks, we'll ship a piece, you know, at the max in the holidays, we might be shipping within three weeks, but uh, we are a pretty efficient um, clock here at this point. So what areas of technology are you investing in now to improve the customer experience, like better visualization technology or mm-hmm. AI systems, et cetera, things like that? That was one of the benefits of the pandemic, I'd say, is we actually had the opportunity to just work on some of that stuff, put our head down and power through. Um, so a couple of things we're working on. We are actually going to be moving all of our visuals into 3D. Uh, and that serves really two reasons. One, I have a graphic, a 3D graphic designer actually on staff. Um, one is that it will allow us to bring new styles into the customizer faster. So they'll still be completely photorealistic, but it doesn't take as long as the very beautiful but belabored process of photography and photo retouching and the whole bit. So it allows us to move new colors, styles, and leathers in much more quickly, but also it'll be a more beautiful experience. The other thing that we work on that we've been working on is what we call um, guided customization. So what can we do to guide the consumer in her design experience? Because if there were any sort of unexpected learnings or, you know, things that we found that could um, make it more challenging to grow the business is that women just don't have that confidence to design their own piece. They've been taught over the years that they have to say what this designer to buy what this designer or that designer has proposed and while they love the idea they don't really feel the confidence in doing it and you see it because we can track what's happening on the site there's the one woman who will sign up and bing bang boom her bag comes through and there's an order and then there's the other woman who you know design after design into her wish list and so we have set up ways to intercept and help but it's an area that we want to be able to let technology do some of the work that the stylists currently do and providing guidance suggestions more mer- what I call jumping off point. So merchandising essentially. So here's a bag that's already designed, start with that, and then you can tweak it or change everything. But women are much more confident starting with something than a blank sketch. And then I guess I'd say lastly, that we want the experience to be completely personalized. So at some point, you know, you would land on a different homepage than I would that reflect things that uh, reflect what you have either designed on our site or anything else that we know about you. So based on the price ranges of your bags, who do you really compete with? We, we are a luxury brand and our client is without, without exception, the classic luxury consumer. She has the closet full of Gucci, Prada, Dior, lots of Louis Vuitton. A lot of clients carry Hermes. Um, uh, so that entire sort of upper tier in the luxury segment and our pricing strategy has always been to come head to head with a silhouette that's comparable, make comparable size, comparable material minus about 20%. So we know that we don't carry the brand cachet yet. So we want to give the customer a little bit of an extra push, even though I think what we're offering as a completely custom piece is already really exceptional and special. We, we know that, you know, you have to just speak to their language. So um, we always sort of are very scientific in how we price our pieces. Um, but I know categorically that we've sat in the luxury departments next to all, you know, YSL, Dior, Gucci, Louis Vuitton. Um, and many of our clients are carrying Hermes and Chanel as well. You know, I don't expect to replace all those brands, but we like having a place in that closet. We call it share of closet. And what we have found the cl- our customer just to sort of go to that direction um, is me really. She's 40 plus. She's got the closet full of those known brands. She's had that experience for whatever it delivers, you know, beauty, quality, cachet, stature. 
Uh, and she'll still pull those bags out for whatever purpose. I still laugh because my daughter's school, we have a lot of clients there. Um, but there's certain events where they all show up with a Chanel bag. You know, it's just the stature or the status that they want for that particular event. But they're all clients of ours. And I see them wearing our bags every day, which was our goal. But that client who has worn beautiful product can appreciate exquisite material because she's felt it and worn it herself, who can recognize exquisite craftsmanship, but just wants to move to something different. She's had too many experiences where the bag that she purchased wasn't actually meeting her needs, or she walks into a room and sees five other people wearing it. And so one of the greatest compliments we have when a client comes back to us is when someone stops and says, oh, who designed your bag? And she can authentically say that she did. You know, and customization has been a growing trend for a while, and it may be becoming more of a movement at this point. Do you think social media has a lot to do with the backlash against the sameness? You know, I, I, I think that's probably part of it, but I think it's also um, just where we are as a, as, a, as a people. And I think especially coming out of the pandemic, um, we are seeing across the board that folks are making a decision that if they're going to make an investment in something, it better meet all of their needs and it better be precisely what they want. Uh, and, you know, women and men have had this opportunity in virtually every other aspect of their lives. You can plan your custom trip. You can design a sofa. Uh, there's so many, you, you know, you can design and build a home. There's so many places where you have the opportunity to do this. Uh, and, and yet somehow in luxury accessories, that just has never come to the front, the forefront. So we see people, uh, we have people, this has been an amazing trend past, past post-pandemic coming to us incoming uh, for fully bespoke bags. And I mean, they take three of their favorite bags and we have to create the ideal bag that reflects the best elements that they've loved of all of those bags. And these are $10,000, $15,000 commissions. And I will tell you, it's not the usual suspect. These are women who just are incredible professionals and they want what they want and they're willing to pay for it. And so I think that's more what you're seeing is just that folks have decided that life's short and if they're going to make that investment, they're going to make it in something that serves them at 100%, not 90% or 80%. And sales of handbags saw a sharp decline during the pandemic when stuck-at-home consumers found expensive bags really to be a non-necessity. How did it impact your business? You know, like the rest of the industry, um, we saw a 20-something, 30-something percent drop uh, in our classic business. We were very fortunate. Our clients are incredibly loyal. We have a very high repeat purchase rate. And I think folks just really rallied around our brand. I just kept communicating out with them. We actually moved into a mask opportunity that New York State supported. And um, so to the extent that we had some inventory on the shelves, we did a little bit of a special sale and folks really supported us throughout that. But like the industry also, we've also seen a huge bounce back and we are very much back on track and exceeding where we were as 2020, uh, 2020 hit. And, you know, if nothing else, the industry has come back even further than it was in 2019. So during that bounce back period, this whole idea of revenge spending, mm -hmm. what types of bags were consumers buying from you? So there's two trends. One I already noted, which is just they're even going above and beyond what we offer and asking for a completely bespoke commission. But the other really big trend is hands-free and convertibility. So hand, they sort of can go hand in hand. Hands-free is cross bodies, uh, almost exclusively cross bodies or bags that at least have a detachable shoulder strap or backpacks. Um, and convertibility, many of our pieces were built this way to begin with anyway. So a bag that could be a 
short shoulder, a crossbody, a wristlet, take all the straps off and it's a little handheld clutch. Um, that is definitely where the market is shifting is clients wanting that kind of convertibility. And we're starting to build that more into our bags even further. And one of the big trends is people increasingly looking to have their luxury bags painted on. It mm-hmm. seemed to have gained traction, especially during lockdown, a very subversive approach to customization. Have you yeah. ever considered something like this? We actually did this for a period of six months, I think, when we, when we were visiting various uh, luxury retailers with uh, trunk shows. Um, and it was well received. You know, I would definitely reconsider going back to that with a particular artist that maybe has a certain cachet and can help us reach a new audience. Um, I wouldn't say that it was stronger than other things we've done, but it definitely was very special. And this particular artist we were using was just exquisite. And you also have a network of stylists. Who are they and what are their roles in the customer shopping journey? One of the things I mentioned was that one of, one of the concerns we have is that folks, just women just don't necessarily get to the finish line comfortably or easily in their con- customization experience. So we can see when someone has started the process but hasn't finished it. And then we graciously invite them to work with a stylist who can kind of carry them through that process and provide that personalized experience, which has only gotten better now that the entire world is more accommodating with Zoom to guide you through a screen share and talk about what your specific needs are and design the piece in tandem with the client. Um, So we have found that has been a really effective strategy. We we find women who have been in luxury retail, whether it's luxury accessories or otherwise, and who really understand that customer, how to really graciously scope out what their needs are and what their real reason for being on the side is, and then guiding them to that process in a way that engenders confidence and, and real level of comfort with this experience, buying a bag that may not have the brand awareness that something else they may have in their closet. And how many stylists do you have? We have three at the moment across the country. Um, and that services us pretty well. And every now and then someone here, if we're backed up, will jump in and work with one of the clients as well. Um, and they're commission driven. Uh, do you want to grow that? We would like to. I think that's an important part of the business. We're, we consider ourselves direct to consumer, but that doesn't mean only defined by online. We're online. We're online to stylists. The stylists themselves actually come with clients from past uh, professional experiences that they introduced to our brand. And even when we're at retail, we learned that we will only be concession uh, or, you know, leased, if you will, because we will, we, the one time we did give up that relationship, um, it just doesn't work. The client doesn't get the kind of luxury experience that we're trying to reinvent really. And it's only our stylists who are trained and understand the customizer and understand our product at the level of detail that's required. So we like to be in retail, but only when it's a concession kind of experience or a pop-up or a trunk where we have the relationship with the client and are managing that customization experience. Everything starts and ends with our technology. So even when we're at retail, we have, Nordstrom was a great example and happy to share more about that. We had an incredible 50-inch touchscreen so the client and the stylist could be designing their piece right there. It was a little bit like performance art. We only had maybe 15 pieces on a shelf. So it's a really tight experience. Uh, Nordstrom did not buy that inventory. We would bring it in and bring it out, merchandise it. It was really meant to be a a try-on sample. If the client found a piece she absolutely felt was perfect and in that assortment, she could buy it. But usually 
it was a reference and a jumping off point with the swatches to design the piece with their stylist on the customizer. And that was an incredible experience. And uh, for us, that's direct to consumer. And we learned that we were never going to be able to train the other stylists who have a lot of other brands that they have to get their hands around to be intimate with our brand, to really feel comfortable with our technology and to operate that kind of experience the way our stylists did. So that is the approach we continue to take. Leather goods are the biggest and highest margin category in the luxury sector, yet leather's carbon footprint is relatively large as far as materials go because of the emissions associated with animal agriculture. Scientists and consumers are increasingly calling for the world to shift away from animal agriculture for environmental or ethical reasons. Where does your company stand on this? Yeah, I laugh because there's so much um, that's not clear about all of this. The reality is it's, it's not so much the fact that there are animals, but the fact of how they have historically and how agriculture, quite frankly, has historically been practiced. Um, so I think we should start with one important point from an ethical perspective, which is there's a percent of the population who has made the choice that they will not eat or consume in any way where animal derived product. And I get that and I respect that. Uh, On the other hand, there's 90% of the world's population who eats meat. And that isn't going away, even if it goes down a little bit, Um, which as a mostly plant-based eater, you know, I fully understand. Um, But historically, over 150 million tons of skins are, there's so much waste of these skins just going into landfills and not being utilized. So one important fact is just that leather is actually the world's oldest recycling or better said upcycling industry in that they were taking a byproduct from something that was already being used and making something productive from it. From an environmental perspective, uh, what's been happening in agriculture overall and certainly the agriculture surrounding raising cattle is that the agriculture as it was practiced uh, has been essentially desertifying, you know, all the plains so that everything is down to dirt. And so that actually creates the reverse process of what we want. Rather than absorbing carbon and producing oxygen, when you have no vegetation, it's actually producing carbon and you're not getting that carbon sequestration that you want. That's why that was a big learning for me over the last several months is that the Amazon and everybody's so concerned that it's being broken down is not because of the loggers going in to uh, get timber for houses and for paper, although I'm sure that's what's happening. It was initiated because Brazil, a huge market, you know, cattle for cattle, for meat and thereby leather, is, needs new grazing ground. And so they're clearing the trees to create new grazing pasture because the animals have nowhere to eat. So what's being practiced more recently, and this is really, I think, been a huge uh, awakening for me, is what's called regenerative farming. Not only for produce that we eat, but also for how cattle are being grazed. So that has a couple of intentions. One is it's um, they're moving the cattle around. So the cattle basically are, I lived in California and I remember coming up I-80 as a kid or one, maybe it was 110 or something. And you would see this cattle feeding ground and it was, there was not a speck of green anywhere. They were all standing on dirt and probably manure and they would just be force fed, whatever they were being fed corn in these troughs. And I would hear them and smell them a mile away. You know, they were on top of each other. It was awful. It was awful from an animal welfare perspective. It was awful from a uh, environmental perspective. Um, And ultimately the 
outgrowth, the meat that people were perhaps getting was not the best either. So this is the exact antithesis of this. So the cattle now are being raised the way cattle are meant to be raised. They're roaming the plains. They eat the wildflower, the biodiverse um, vegetation. They poop, they trample the grass. And that's actually processing the at the soil and the agriculture, the way you know it would have been done a thousand years ago, more naturally. And then the farmers very actively move them to another area for them to do that. They call it um, pasture management. And then they um, this does a couple of things. It's called this is called regenerative farming. It's really intended to restore the ecosystem while resulting in a better livelihood for the animals and ultimately a better meat product is appropriate. So it's actually reversing carbon emissions by taking the carbon out of the environment and. And, and sequestering it into the soil. It's allowing the soil to regenerate and so to do what it's supposed to do. So it becomes the food that it's always meant to be. Soil is so, so important. I don't think any of us ever really valued or appreciated that. And now you're increasing the biodiversity. So now it allows the plants, the microorganisms, the livestock to all work to support each other the way they would have done in a more um, natural ecosystem. It's really going back to what mother nature had intended. So you see a lot of brands now are moving towards regenerative leathers and we are doing the same as well. And we can talk more about that, um, but really sourcing from, from um, farmers and ranchers who are practicing regenerative agriculture. Would you ever consider adding eco-friendly materials as part <laughs> of the customization process? Like vegan? Exactly. Yeah. So vegan is the biggest ruse in the in industry. It just makes me crazy. And yet I was conned as well. I use these words and they're very strong, but I use them intentionally. So I'm yet to see a vegetably derived, vegetable derived material that isn't bonded in some fashion by some kind of polyurethane or other plastic material derived from fossil fuels. So the reality is, and we, we did the big deep dive ourselves. We pulled in everything. I mean, pineapple leaves and corn and cactus and mushroom. And we, we've looked at it all and we were excited about it. And then as we started to dig around, we realized what's, what's on the back holding this together. And it's a polyurethane derived or some kind of plastic fossil fuel derived material. And because plants just aren't going to stand up by themselves, they have no ability to bond together. So while the entire, we were about to move forward with the cactus leather, because it's the one that probably looks the nicest and the most authentic, but we realized, A, that a lot of very moderate brands were using it. B, it absolutely is not 100%. In fact, it's antithesis of biodegradable. And C, people were actually not being fully um, honest, let's say, about what it was. They were saying they had 100% plant-based material, and it's absolutely not that. So we just didn't want to play that game. And I think in a couple of other brands that I've spoken to found the same thing, that ultimately, um, if someone could find a vegan leather and create one that is truly um, not reliant on a fossil fuel, then, you know, we'd be all for it. But until that happens, leather is actually the most biodegradable material. And since it's already a byproduct of an industry that's never going to go away, we're solving this problem of 150 million hides going into landfills every year. So Stephanie, what's next for One Atelier? Where do you want to take it from here? So springboarding from the conversation about regenerative leather, um, we already work with really exquisite and very professional tanneries in Italy on all of our leather sourcing. And they, as we, you probably know, have a much higher standard around environmental considerations I mean, Europe in general does, and certainly around um, tanneries and leather production. So we're working with 
Tranry's doing leather working group rated, um, who are leather working group rated at, you know, gold or silver level. So we're excited about, we're happy about that, but we know that we can do more. So we're actually exploring now regenerative leather and we're putting together a offering that um, we will be launching here in the near future that will be, first of all, it'll be 100% natural. So virtually nothing synthetic. Um, it'll be 100% traceable and it'll be completely local. So everything from the sourcing of the hides to the tanning of the leather here in the States to the production, of course, at our facility here in Manhattan will happen within a 2000 foot radius or a circumference. And, um, and yet there'll be exquisite, exquisite handcrafted luxury bags, just, um, you know, far more sustainable. Essentially it's the Holy grail. It's, it's regenerative, it's produced on demand and it's perfectly circular. And where can my listeners go if they want to learn more about the company? Our website is oneatelier.com. And we have some really exceptional content describing our craftsmanship, our leather, our stance on sustainability. We have a blog with lots of fun posts. And uh, we invite them to come take a look. We've got our summer campaign still on the homepage. And we have an in-house photographer who did it. It's just extraordinary. I'm really pleased with where we are as a business. Stephanie Sarka, co-founder and CEO of One Atelier. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you. It's been my pleasure.